Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we're uh, happy to have a special guest on the podcast to talk to us about some issues concerning resuming jury trials in COVID-19. You know, Tane, it's, it's pretty rare we have repeat guests either at our homes or on our podcast. In fact, it's never happened in either circumstance. <laughs> All kidding aside, we know the Chief Justice is, is, is crazy busy trying to do task forces and meetings and statewide meetings and national meetings and uh, town hall meetings with different classes of court. He's really incredibly gracious with his time, and he's a lot of fun to be around. And we hope that y'all get a sense of just how much fun he is to be around and, and how hard he's trying to actually help us in the trial court arena get ready for trials. You know, Tane, I think if I was a listener to this, I might let my friends know who try cases like lawyers or clerks of court or judges of other classes of court. They might want to tune in on this one, you think? You mean they might go to goodjudgepod.com? Well, he is like a trained, I mean, animal. He can just jump right when we need him to jump. Folks, go to goodjudgepod.com, send us emails at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we will be happy to share these notes with you. There's not a lot of notes and, and statutes really in anywhere in, in this episode. And there's a good reason for that. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. Words to live by, Wade. So folks, welcome again to the Good Judgment Podcast and enjoy our episode with Chief Justice Harold Melton. We are honored to have a repeat guest on the podcast today, a man known very well to all the lawyers and judges who have been struggling to ensure that courts continue to work during the judicial emergency occasioned by this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, that's correct. We're honored to welcome as our special guest on his return visit to the podcast. I think you're the first repeat offender here. Uh, This is our special guest, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Georgia, Mr. Harold Milton. Mr. Chief Justice, we're incredibly honored to welcome you to the Good Judgment Podcast today. Thank you, Judge. It's good to be with you as always. You know, Tane, last time we had Chief Justice Melton as a guest on our podcast, it was back in May of this year, at least when we recorded it. COVID was relatively new, and we were trying to figure out things to determine which sort of hearings were essential. Remember, we had to make sure we only handled essential matters and when back during the early stages of the judicial emergency, I hate to b- admit it, but we're actually talking, reminiscing about the early days of the judicial emergency. Yeah, yeah. Back in the good old days, back when it just first started and we didn't know we were going to live our lives on uh, on Zoom from that point on. But uh, that was a time when judges across the country were trying to learn how to employ technology in their respective courtrooms. We never would have believed that computer programs such as Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams would have any real place in our courtrooms. And yet here we are today kind of spending most of our days on them right now. 
Mr. Chief Justice, we really are going to focus this episode on the topic of jury trials during these unprecedented moments of our judicial history and our societal history, honestly. And But we would be remiss if we did not give you an opportunity to share some of your impressions on the the judiciary as a whole and how they have been responding during the pandemic. Well, I think you're wise to, to start here as we talk about jury trials because it starts with judges. And we're at this point because of judges. I, I am grateful for the opportunity to brag on the judges across this state on how they've been able to be problem solving and mission oriented during this process. It was an intimidating prospect to tackle COVID-19 and how we adjust to it. And it's easy to pull back and do next to nothing. It's much more difficult to figure out how you operate core functions and everything courts do are critical ultimately, how you do those court functions in the midst of a pandemic. And if you're not mission oriented, if you're not serious about solving problems and getting from A to B, you would just punt. But our judges are across the state have have kept the doors open. They have done what they could, uh, what they could have done throughout this process and added services. The more we all became aware of how to do that the best way possible. And so now we're at the point where the only thing left for us to consider is how to do the next next biggest critical step, which is the jury trial process. So judges have been amazing. This episode is uh, really designed to address the unique issues that will be associated with jury trials during the judicial emergency. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, on October the 10th, 2020, you issued the seventh order extending the declaration of statewide judicial emergency. That extension order authorized the resumption of jury trials in Georgia under some very specific circumstances. For our listeners, can you recap the conditions which must be met before a trial court can resume jury trials? So first and foremost, the message that we've been repeating since day one is be safe, be safe. We've been sensitive to the idea that when a judge holds any type of proceeding, they are requiring parties to come to the courthouse. With jury trials in particular, they are requiring their parties, but also potential jurors to come to the courthouse. That means get off your couch, get in your car and drive to the courthouse and have yourself, offer yourself to be considered as a potential juror and then ultimately be willing to serve as a juror. So we have to always remember that we have to be safe in that process. So in in doing that, we require the judges, the chief judge of each circuit to put together a planning committee The planning committee would consist of each class of court located in each county. And so the the municipal courts, the magistrate courts, the probate courts, juvenile courts, anybody in that building needs to be part of that planning process, including the clerks. And they get together and they come up with a plan. That plan needs to come up with plans and specificities for every aspect of what it means to enter that courthouse, do the court business, and then exit the courthouse. How you, how you park, where you park, where you line up to enter, who does the, the temperature checks and COVID screening, along with the security screening, how you queue up for the elevator, where do you go when you get off the elevator, what, what rooms do you enter, how do you arrange for seating in those rooms, how do you plan for restrooms, how you plan for water to be delivered or available to potential jurors, what kind of air filtration systems must be in place. And as you do all that, you're putting stress on all aspects of the courthouse infrastructure, which means that you have to plan for staggering uh, 
groups that come, that come in so you're not overlapping, so you can maintain the distancing. So all that has to be planned. So that's the second thing. As you plan though, you don't just plan and stick it in a drawer, you publish it. You publish it to the administrative office of the courts, you put it on your court website, and more importantly, you send it to, to potential jurors, at least a summary of your plan. What we want the potential jurors to, to know on the front end before they get in their car to come to the courthouse is that the local court officials have thought about their safety and planned for their safety. They can look and see what has been done to accommodate their safety before having to get into their car, drive to the courthouse and see whether their, their safety has been accounted for. So all, those are all the things that have been, been required uh, to emphasize safety, safety, safety. I was going to say, I, I would I would imagine that that means that the plans that are going to get a, get submitted to the AOC are going to be potentially as different as all of our different jurisdictions and circuits across the state. That, that's exactly right. You know, some courthouses are old, some are new, some have bigger rooms or more of those bigger rooms. So every courthouse is different. Uh, the demands are different. The number of judges are different. Uh, absolutely. That's why the, the planning has to be done at the local level. So, Mr. Chief Justice, assuming the court in question has formed those required committees, developed the plan, utilizing the guidance documents that were, appended, uh, I guess, appendices to the seventh order, and local conditions allow for resumption of jury trials, judges are then expected to work through the mechanics of exactly how those jury trials would be conducted, addressing a lot of those issues you just mentioned. I realize that all the different circuits have developed all sorts of different procedures, and it would be impossible to address all of those in this episode, even if we tried. Instead, I would like to ask a couple of questions that have been shared with us offline and see if you can help give us some, some direction. But before we get into that nuts and bolts discussion, I realize that you have recently been quoted, and I think I got it wrong, um, saying that the in the seventh order, which all, which allows the jury trials, that they're not set in stone. And I don't think that's what you said. I think it's not irreversible or something like that. Correct. Nothing's irreversible. We're not being pig-headed and, and moving forward regardless of the circumstances. The bottom line is this, though. We do have to figure out how to conduct jury trials in the midst of a, of a pandemic. We can't continue to wait. Uh, we're at nine months at this point. That means people in in jail have been waiting in addition to what is ordinarily the wait, an additional nine months solely attributed to uh, COVID. We've got to keep keep moving. We have to figure out how to move ahead, even in the midst of COVID. And so we, we've done the planning. We have a certain level of, uh, of infection rates that exist right now. That infection rate is not prohibitive of moving forward. However, if, if what some of the health officials are saying happens or fearing happens, that is we have a uptick during the winter months and, and, and the infection rates skyrocket or, or elevate to a significant degree, we, we have to do what's right. And again, in, in the name of safety, pull back. And we're not, we want our judges to use judgment. We have emphasized all along that the judges need to be in contact with the local public health officials and if we get word that the numbers are prohibitive then we need to pull back and hold we know what it looks like to not do jury trials we know what it looks like to go all the way back to what we called initially critical functions or essential services the whole range of, of the of that 
spectrum is available should circumstances require it. I hope that we don't have to get there, uh, but assuming that uh, that's necessary, we have the flexibility to do that. Assuming that we are where we are or improving, we, we're, we're doing well to continue to move forward jury trials. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I mean, of course, none of us are public health experts, and, and so it's hard for us to even talk in those terms. And I'm sure that you're also relying on the advice and reports of those experts when you're making decisions relating to jury trials. But one of the common benchmark statistics that uh, seems to be the number of infections per 100,000 inhabitants. Is there any hard and fast rate of infection that is, that is it is likely we will again be forced to suspend jury trials. In other words, is there a number out there that's kind of the magic number we're looking at uh, that would say, eh, we got to put the brakes on at this point? If there is a magic number, it has not been confirmed to us. Uh, that question has been asked to the State Department of Public Health. Uh, we, we continue to have discussions about whether that is the, the right metric or whether a metric like that exists. Uh, it obviously would be very helpful to even have a, a generic benchmark that we can look at and look to. But short of that, we'll have to engage with our local public health officials on a county-by-county on county basis. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Was that locally, we've just been talking to our health officials to say, how do the numbers look to you? Does this look like a, a point at which it would be safe for us to engage uh, jury trials in our county or in our circuit right now and, and try to rely on their expertise? I think that's the flavor of how it looks. I think the, the local officials are somewhat reluctant to issue a, a bright line benchmark because then the question will be if we say that this bright line is the bright line for where you have to cease having certain types of trial proceedings what does that mean for schools what does it mean for other types of gatherings and they're just reluctant to make those those types of bright line calls in advance i think they'd much rather have this conversation where they would kind of walk through your building and get a sense of what that might look like in real life so I do think it's going to re remain local. Mr. Justice, you know, though, that that at some point people are expecting that of judges. They're kind of expecting us to know that 206 out of 100,000 means this, but but 273 means that. And we're, we're, we're not trying to punt our responsibilities, but we're kind of in that same boat that we're expected to know something that may be, I don't know, unknowable. You know what I'm saying? That's right. And, you know, as judges, we're used to having these totality of the circumstances kind of analysis. Public might have to um, get used to, to that type of uh, analysis. But the good thing is we are being extremely careful. If you look at the planning that has gone on in the courthouses and the modifications to the courtrooms and the, the safety precautions, it's really over the top and very comforting. Uh, to see the, the level of concern that the judges have put into making it safe for, for the jurors so that we can get to some real critical community questions that have to be answered and, and cannot not continue to be on hold. I believe we probably had jury trials in, during every war that's existed during the U.S. history. And each time there, 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 came, there came this moment where you said, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, there's fear that, yeah, they, there are concerns, but this is what we do as a country, and that must continue. So I want to start some of our nuts and bolts discussion with an incredibly self-serving question. And Tane, I know you're shocked to hear that I would do something self-serving. We would expect nothing less, Wade. 
I'm going to, I don't think we're unique in Augusta in struggling with having courtrooms large enough to accommodate parties, court personnel, jurors, the public in a single courtroom while also observing the social distancing rules. I mean, we just don't have those size, those size rooms, but one of the things that has been discussed a great deal offline is live streaming or simulcasting or closed circuit TVing. I've heard all of those um, phrases be used. The proceedings into another room or to the internet, to YouTube or wherever. So let me ask it in a very specific way. Do you think that we can fulfill our obligations of open courtrooms and making sure the public has access to the proceedings by live streaming the proceedings into another room within the courthouse when we are having to use the available gallery in that courtroom as a huge, huge jury box? So um, I will answer the question, but I'll preface by saying that this is one of those weird spaces that I'm getting into where uh, I'm giving legal advice, but also necessary guidance and things might get challenged and I, I try I always try not to prejudge but this is something I think is critical to, to address. Uh, I do think it's it's acceptable to do what you just said to make public access available following what you might call the Cobb County model. Cobb County was the first court that I was aware of uh, who, who was considering implementing just what you talked about. If you know any judges in Cobb County, um, you might want to really talk with ones. one or two of them to see how they're able to pull it off. But the whole idea is to make sure that nothing is being done in secret, that the public has access to what's being, being done in the courthouses. And if they're getting live time practical access to what's happening in the courtroom, I struggle to see how that would not meet constitutional muster. Compare what an individual, a citizen has to do if they want to walk in and see what's happening in the courthouse right now, or even before COVID. What that meant was they would have to get out of bed, uh, exercise some type of hygiene, get into their cars, most likely as Americans, we, we drive everywhere, park their car, pay a certain amount of money, walk to the courthouse door, go through screening, get up the elevator, sit in the courtroom and wait until things happen. If they do all that and instead of walking to the actual courtroom walk right next door, uh, I fail to see how that's that's materially different from a constitutional standpoint. Or if they walk into a different room uh, that happens to um, be, be, be streaming exactly what's going on then, I also struggle to see what, what how that's constitutionally different. So I, I say yes. One thing you had said early on uh, that we that we took to heart in Cobb was uh, it would also be helpful if someone could if there were sort of a double check on that so that they could see that what you're streaming into the other room is actually what's going on in the courtroom. And we actually have the way our doors and things are set up in our courtrooms. We have it so that you can have the outside door open. Uh, and be able to see through the windows of the inside doors and see into the courtroom without actually going into the courtroom. So we, we actually have a way that people could could see in without actually having to go into the courtroom and see what's going on in there. And I like that. Everything you could do to to mimic as, as, as closely as you can what happens in real life is great. Um, I, I, I was on one national call where the judge says, yeah, you could stream something live to YouTube, but that's really like overkill. You, you don't have to broadcast 
in such a way that everybody in the in the universe has instant access to what's happening in the courthouse. That's not what happened pre-COVID, so you don't have to, to, to do that during COVID. And we run into a lot of those broadcasting issues with the Rule 22 problems we've talked about in the past where people take something from the courtroom and broadcast it or put it on a YouTube page or do something like that to maybe hurt their spouse in a in a sure. divorce case or something along those lines. And those and, are and problematic you want, too. And you want to maintain the dignity of the process. You definitely want to maintain the dignity. And that's something we've wrestled with as we've looked at all these remote options is, is a potential witness in a remote hearing, scrambling eggs and turning around and testifying in court. Yes, yeah. sir. All right. So just so for our listeners benefit, the seventh order extending this uh, judicial emergency had several appendices to them. One of them was the guidance for resuming jury trials. That is an appendix to that seventh order. And some of this is addressed there in a general sense, probably not in the specifics we just did, but in a general sense, if you're looking for that, all that can be found through the AOC. If you need it from us, we'll be happy to post it as well. If you need it, you know, you always contact us. Tane, where can they talk, contact us? At goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That a boy. All right. So, uh, Tane, you got any questions? Yeah. Uh, and again, you throw out whatever disclaimers you might need to, Mr. Chief Justice, on this one. But uh, I'm just going to ask you a specific scenario type question. If a circuit um, is going to try to find that larger facility that they may need for social distancing, and let's say they're using something like a civic center or a basketball gymnasium or some other non-traditional facility to conduct jury trials or to conduct, you know, some part of the jury trial under OCGA section 38-3-60 that allows that in certain circumstances, would it be sufficient in, in that situation for the chief judge of that circuit uh, to issue a single written order to that effect? In other words, we're going to continue to use this facility during this crisis, or is that something that needs to be written on a case-by-case -case basis in your, in, in your opinion? You mean without doing any research? <laughs> yes, sir. I just want it right off the top of your head, sir. <laughs> to my knowledge, with that disclaimer, uh, I would I would think that a, a general order would suffice. Uh, there is a statute that talks about how a court can designate an alternative location in the event that the current location is infeasible uh, for purposes of holding court, and that's that's done by a general court order. It's not for every proceeding. Uh, just borrowed from that as an example, I would think that one general order would suffice. And we would read that statute, but Wade, why do we not read that out? Oh, you mean you mean on the podcast? Yeah, why don't we just read that statute? Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. Exactly. That's exactly why we don't do that. So... During Vordire, Mr. Chief Justice, we recognize that 1512-131 allows a party to request that jurors be placed in a panel of 12 into the box for individual questioning. Frankly, we're not using boxes. I mean, you know, this is going to be a whole new thing. Does the statute, do statutes like that, and I'm not trying to, to nail you down on that one, do statutes like that remain in full force and effect during this judicial emergency, or are those the kind of things that have some wiggle room? Well, they remain in full force and effect. The question is, what's a box in a new world? Uh, and and you know, that, will, that will be left to be determined. But it, it's important to point out that we have a Judicial Emergency Act, and that's the act that 
uh, our court and I have used to figure out what are the things that we are authorized to include in a judicial emergency order and what are the things that we don't have the authority to, to uh, implement or change. The Emergency Act clearly allows the Chief Justice to suspend all deadlines and tolling requirements and things along those lines. And if you look at our orders, that's prim primarily what our, our orders do. Uh, we could turn proceedings on and off, but we can't really turn off statutory requirements that, and the requirements that are substantively provided in the law. We don't have that authority. So to the extent that that is a substantive requirement, I don't have the authority to turn that off. Uh, we do have, uh, we have, it is our job to figure out how that, what that provision means in the COVID world and whether what is being accomplished meets the requirements of a box. So in Augusta, in, in, go ahead. I'm sorry, Tay. I was just going to say in Cobb, in order to stay within the technical requirements of OCGA section 15-12-131, we're actually constructing a very large cardboard box. It's, it's, we, we can socially distance at least 12 people in there at a time, but it's very, very big. And we're going to try to get that away. All right. So in Augusta, Mr. Chief Justice, we plan to conduct Vordire in an alternate facility. Some people call it the James Brown Arena. Other people might call it our Civic Center. And after that jury is selected, we're going to conduct the actual trial in a courtroom within the courthouse. We cannot use the existing jury boxes and also apply those social distancing rules. Our plan, and this is really kind of talking through you to short, sh share a plan with other people, but our plan is for witnesses to be seated in the jury box closest to the gallery and facing the gallery. And then the jurors are going to actually sit in the gallery for the duration of trial. That's going to be the jury box. Is there anything... In, in that general mechanism that you see as an issue that would be given that the, the gallery is going to be largely occupied by jurors. I know we've talked about live streaming that's already been done, but is there anything about that that you think we need to be keenly or, or uniquely aware of? Well, I know you, I know you, and I know how your folks out there are, are, are going about your business. So I know you've already thought about these things, but clearly if you're doing that, then, you don't want a lot of witnesses and observers sitting around your jurors. You're going to want them in a different location. Uh, like most likely then that will have to be someplace other than the, the courtroom where the case is being tried. So now you're back into the questions that you just asked earlier about overflow rooms where the, the proceedings are live streamed into that room. And, and will that work? Well, I think, yes, I think it will work. I think it has to work. Um, and it, the main thing is that you create the opportunity for the public to see what is going on in real time. Well, we were uh, we were talking about you know obviously because we have so many different counties in Georgia, the circuits are very different as you move around the state of Georgia. There are unique situations that come up in each county, and Wade and I had talked a little bit about just some unique things that each of us were. Uh, looking at in our counties. And, and for example, one of the things that comes up in Cobb is because of the way that our courthouse building um, is constructed, uh, we have uh, 11 courtrooms essentially in the building. 
but you can't bring that many people in all at one time. You know, I mean, even we have four courtrooms on each floor. We can't conduct four jury trials at the same time right now. And so, you know, we're going to like most circuits, I think we're going to go slowly uh, start with essentially one trial at a time, uh, trying to see, you know, how the facilities work, uh, you know, how, how we can stream the public into the courtroom uh, to keep them safe, the jurors uh, and, and the other people who will be involved in the trial. And, and so I, I think, I think that's going to be what a lot of people are going to have to do is, uh, is figure out how to go slowly uh, and, and also take into consideration uh, as in, mo as most jurisdictions do, we have other uh, levels of court in our same courthouse complex. So we have to coordinate more than we've ever had to do before with those other classes of court to see what they're doing uh, on a particular uh, you know, week or day or whatever. So that if, uh, if the probate court needs to have a jury trial, I mean, for some of us, uh, it was a shock to find out that probate court sometimes has jury trials. Um, and uh, so I, we knew, we just theoretically knew they did, but they do. Uh, so, so we're having to coordinate with those folks more than ever before. And I, I'm sure you're hearing a lot of that too uh, yeah. from the courts around the state. Well, well, that goes to the first question you asked, which was how are judges doing? This only works if judges do at a level beyond which um, they've ever had to do it. And that is coordinate with each other. So like you said, the superior court judges will have to uh, coordinate to allocate the, the, the courtrooms that are available for trials because it's going to take more than one courtroom to conduct a trial. And so that can only be done with coordination. And then uh, all the other classes of court uh, will, are, are, are jockeying for the, the limited space that's available. I had a letter from juvenile court this week uh, asking how to navigate that. And the answer, at least initially, is as best you can locally uh, to budget that that the, the pie of courthouse facilities uh, throughout throughout the day, throughout the week, and to the extent necessary, you know, using whatever resources you can to find those those annexes to to lighten that load a little bit. But it, it requires more coordination than we've ever had to exercise. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about Wade, but I mean, we never talked to state court. We didn't even have their phone number when this came up. Like. I, I knew they were across the street. I knew there's a building over there, but I've never been over there or anything. And so, yeah, it's, we've really had to do a lot of stuff we never had to do before. I mean, they, they've got a chief, they got a chief judge and everything. Um, <laughs> anyway, Wade. So just as a, as a quick hit thing, Mr. Chief Justice, the judicial emergency orders, and you've talked about sort of what you can and can't change under the act. But do they change any of the rules about defendants being in custody or shackled or whatever during a trial or any rule like that? No, we don't, not even close. We only begin to touch on those types of substantive issues. Yeah, and another quick uh, topic uh, that, that I know other judges would be interested in and probably some of the lawyers too. Are there any specific area issues or areas of concern from the appellate court side um, that trial judges need to keep in mind as we proceed? Well, we, we're all going through uncharted territory. Everything's new. Uh, I would say as you, as you go through the slow deliberative process that Judge Padgett was talking about in terms of how you organize your facilities, 
and how you talked about in terms of making sure you, you don't you don't schedule proceedings on top of somebody else. I think the actual proceedings themselves have to be slow and careful. And as you do something different, state out loud what it is you're doing and what it looks like and let the record reflect, especially the agreement or the lack of an objection by the parties. Uh, that's gonna be really, really important when it comes time to the appellate review of, the, of those proceedings. And the more you show disorganized method and process uh, and thoughtfulness, which we know is there, but actually articulate it, the easier it will be for the courts to, to defer to, to the judgment calls, the tough judgment calls that the trial, judge are, tr trial judges are making across the state. Yeah, I anticipate at the beginning of those trials, it's going to be incumbent on us as the trial judges to set the stage, basically, and say, right. Here, here's where we're holding court, here's where how everyone is seated, right. here's the things we've done to take the necessary precautions, and, and however we can do that, either by attaching some documents to the record or, or, or just stating it on the record, we may end up having to do that at the beginning of every trial. Now, Mr. Chief Justice, Tane can't get over your vast powers. He constantly talks about the vast powers of the true. Chief Justice, but so true. your authority to declare a judicial emergency somehow, and, and you always say this and I always forget it, is somehow tied to the governor's declaration of a statewide health emergency. So when the governor's larger declaration ends, you know, we all pray it'll be soon, but we're not blind. It may not be soon. How does that ending of the statewide emergency impact your authority to extend the judicial emergency? It extinguishes my authority to declare a judicial emergency. Our authority uh, is coextensive with whatever period of time the governor has declared for a statewide emergency. Uh, so I, I, have, I have a shelf life and it, it expires when the governor's order expires. You probably had the governor's phone number though, as opposed to our situation we, over here. We have talked uh, and we have we have definitely talked, not, I mean, not the governor and I, but I've talked with his staff to get some pretty good projections about how much longer they anticipate or how long they anticipate uh, continuing to issue emergency orders. There are some things we might have to think about that might extend beyond that period. Uh, one of the things that we are looking at is whether we need to continue the suspension on speedy trial demands, statutory speedy trial demands, because not much the backlog, uh, it may take a lot longer to substantially get past that backlog beyond the time period of the governor's emergency order. Yeah, I think I think our listeners will be happy to know that 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 you certainly recognize that that's going to be a prominent issue for us and and also ultimately for your court as well as we go forward with jury trials because I think I think there's a real fear out there among us as judges about the backlog and how we can handle it. For example, in my circuit, if we're doing one jury trial at a time after that's lifted, that's not the same as doing five or six like we used to do uh, in the BC uh, before COVID era. Now, Mr. Chief Justice, not to belabor this, but at one point I was thinking, even if the governor's declaration ends on, on day one, you had some ability to extend no more than 30 days beyond. Is there something? So in, initially, in, I think in 2011, we had the Emergency Act amended. Prior to that, 
the chief justice had the authority to issue a judicial emergency order for 30 day periods for a maximum of 90 days. So two extensions. The 2011 amendment allowed the chief justice to extend it for 30 day periods indefinitely, but not to exceed the governor's emergency order. So that is the outside limit. Okay. So are we going to, and Tane and I are kind of coming to the same question. Once all this is over, we go back to the ways we did things BC. At least that's what we think, because we can't really declare the James Brown arena, the alternate facility and things like that. I know you're working on a couple of statutes that we've, we've learned some lessons the hard way out of this COVID business and this judicial emergency, but that's basically right. Correct. I mean, we can't really keep things changed and amended once the the judicial emergency declaration ends, right? Well, there are certain things we can continue to do uh, that are that are just good practices. The continued use of remote technology, we can continue to to do that. There's some rule changes that we implemented on a temporary basis during the pandemic. And we did it on a temporary basis because we wanted to see what it looked like, but we have the option of making those temporary changes permanent. And I think there's a good chance that that will happen. Um, you know, I don't know where, where we will be in terms of social distancing this time next year, even if the governor's order and the, 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 the judicial emergency order is not in place. Um, but it still may be that we have to stagger proceedings and we need distancing and we're not shaking hands and we're not uh, whispering in each other's ears at the council table. It, it still may be the case that we're doing those things. And if that's the case, we're still gonna have plexiglass up and we're still gonna have sanitizer and those things we can do with or without a order in place. And uh, so I do think we'll, we will have a change in operations and how we, how we do things and how we see the world uh, before we get fully, fully back to, to the way we were before. So most of great leaders, and, and there's very been very little doubt that you have been a, a really a wonderful resource for everybody during this pandemic, but most of them have a really cool quote. And I didn't know if you had anything like right off the top of your head, not not anything about Auburn or anything like that, but, but something Please. really good that you uh, wanted to, to sort of be known as. Was, was there something that, that your go-to on that? Ah, goodness. I, I might have to come back to, to you on that. I don't have anything. <laughs> Life uh, is what happens when we're making other plans. That's Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine, I think. <laughs> what about the guy that did deep thoughts? Do you remember Jack Handy from Jack the Handy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I used to love those. Those <laughs> yeah. were great. That was fantastic. All right. So, let, hey, Tane, let's thank, uh, let's thank Mr. our Chief Justice. I know he's got more important things to do than listen to us talk about Jack Handy. But let's Absolutely. thank him again to, for being our special guest. Seriously, Mr. Chief Justice, we know you're busy, and it, it really is an honor having you as a repeat customer. We really appreciate it. It really is, and it's very, very helpful to us and all the folks out there practicing in the different courts just to hear from you and get some insight from you, and we thank you for that and for being on the program today. Thank y'all, and y'all doing great work. You helped us get the word out. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. So thank you, our loyal listeners, for tuning in to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and uh, as always, wash your hands after podcasting.
Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Only stay classy, San Diego.